the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello and welcome to today's episode of The Situation Report. This is the show where we give you the information you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stoniker. I am your host today, and I have two great guests on with me. In fact, what we're going to do is port you into a conversation that we had about a very important topic. As you know, if you have watched the news at all, and if you're listening to this show, I know you're engaged with what's happening in culture. Uh, as you know, then, we are struggling as a country to deal with many decisions made by those in our government that have really long-lasting and we'll see ramifications. There will be consequences for the decisions that are being made around the world. I could be speaking about a lot of things right now, but specifically, I'm talking about the decisions that are being made uh, as it relates to Afghanistan. 20 years we have been in Afghanistan. A timeline has been set to get out. I was going to say evacuate, but really it's not even evacuate. It's just get out. Our administration has decided they'll hold to that timeline. They have bungled. That's a very nice way of saying they've really messed up this evacuation and this pullout uh, in, in ways that is, is difficult to even understand what the motivation might be. We won't try to understand that today. But we do want to talk about some of the good that's happening there. So much bad, we hear this every day, and we could have a whole show uh, just talking about the bad, but a lot of good is happening. Where the administration and so many in our, our government, many politicians have fallen short, regular Americans have stood up. So many folks have given to support evacuations of Americans, of uh, interpreters and their families, of others, out of Afghanistan at a very difficult time, uh, in a very difficult environment. Many, many, many thousands of Americans have stepped up to financially support. Many have stepped up to physically support, to do things, to facilitate this happening. Uh, we are at the Mighty Oaks Foundation, the organization that I work for, that Chad Robichaux, uh, our co-host, typically, that he works for. Um, he is the founder and president of the Mighty Oaks Foundation. I'm the CEO there. That's our day job. We work with veterans and active duty service members and first responders across the country. Uh, that's our organization. That's what we do. And as an organization, the Mighty Oaks Foundation, along with the Independence Fund, led by Sarah Verardo, have formed what we are calling the Save Our Allies Coalition, the Save Our Allies Coalition, and with uh, that coalition and many partners, we've had the opportunity to work on evacuating thousands of folks out of Afghanistan. We had a conversation about that today and wanted to share that with you. So without further ado, my conversation with Chad Robichaux and Sarah Verardo. So you guys have been pretty deep in this for the last couple of weeks. I want to lay out a roadmap for our conversation, and then you take it wherever you'd like to take it. Um, I think our audience would be very interested in where Save Our Allies, the, co the coali coalition, easy word to say, the coalition began. So how uh, the various organizations that have been involved, and I know it's more than just the two of our organizations, but how the various organizations came together. 
um, what your expectation was getting into this, and I know expectations have changed quickly over the last couple of weeks, but what the expectation initially was, what has happened, and then give us an update uh, as to where we are right now. So let's begin at the beginning. Uh, the coalition formed. Where did that start and how did it all come together? So uh, I think it was August 15th, the day that Afghanistan you know, formally collapsed. And I got a call from Nick Palmashano, who I've done a lot of work with, he's awesome. And he said, hey, Chad has a way to get people out. And he didn't really have to say anything more than that because I was like, got it, I'll call Chad. And he was like, yeah, yeah, call Chad. Like, you know, you two put your minds together. And, um, and so I knew, you know, I've known Chad for a number of years. We've done some other work together and I knew his heart and his commitment to seeing a mission through. So I thought, this is great. So I called Chad and I said, how, how can I help what you're doing? And I know that Chad was inundated with communication. So I sort of said like, I'll, I'll help you from an administrative, like put the list together, get organized. And um, the rest from there is sort of just history. We, we had other good, really good partners, but it was just formalized between our two groups because we knew that we could rally the troops quickly. And I knew that Chad was gonna be on the ground. Chad, does that sound right to you? It was kind of just or ragtag. <laughs> that sounds good. Like we were saying before the show, it's like a two weeks is all like blurred into one day. Uh, mainly because of sleep. You guys, you guys just hit a buzzer or something if I fall asleep. <laughs> but uh, but um, yeah, I mean it's 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 really, I think God ordained how it all came together. We uh, this started for me um, probably a little bit selfishly. Um, I had a very strong desire to get my interpreter out of Afghanistan uh, and his family. Um, Aziz, I, you know, for years I've been calling him Bashir through my books and through speaking because I've had to hide his identity because for his own safety. But I'm happy now I can say his name is Aziz. Aziz is uh, not just like an interpreter as part of a, like my platoon or unit. Like Aziz and I, like when we first went to Afghanistan, it was two two man teams and an interpreter Aziz. And then really shortly, uh, short into my first deployment, we were going out on operations by ourselves. And then the rest of my eight deployments, it was just me Aziz most of the time. And so developed a tremendous bond with Aziz, with his family, uh, and, um, and just like, I mean, he saved my life multiple times and seemed saved the lives of my friends and, and, uh, other like seals we were working with. And he's just an incredible human being, uh, just totally selfless. And I just knew I had to get him out. And I knew the SIV process, the special immigrant visa process was broken. We had been trying for five years to do that. So many other interpreters were trying to get this SIV process through a state department. And I'm like, this is thing to work. Even had, even with me having like contacts in Congress, like to push his SIV process through. I knew it wasn't gonna work. I, anybody that knows anything about Afghanistan and military strategy knew when Joe Biden said that we're gonna leave in, a, in, in August or before 9-11, uh, before September 11th anniversary. When he said that, we knew this was gonna happen. I mean, I don't have to be a prophet to figure that out. It was pretty clear what was gonna happen. And so I started devising a plan of how to get Aziz out. Dan, Dan uh, Stinson, as a guy I was deployed with and, and at JSOC and he knew Aziz really well, very close to him as well. And we both were like, we're gonna make this happen. We got some money together. We came up with like a, kind of went back to our old days of the type of work we used to do and came up with a kind of covert way to sneak him out of the country. And, uh, but we just ran out of time. And uh, so we were heading here. We, were, we knew we were heading here to get him out uh, with another plan B that we had that we felt was a pretty good one. And then we started, uh, what, putting our team together and as we put our team together we ran into this guy i'll just say sean g is his name uh, a guy with a tremendous amount of special operations experience particularly in a what, what's called a, uh, a 
PROs, which is precision rescue operations, which is, you know, us going in in a covert capacity to, to rescue people. Um, and that we had two team, team members uh, that are on a team that, that was going there to look to get 3,000 orphans. So that was originally, I was going to get Aziz's family. These guys are going to get 3,000 orphans. And our ways to do that, we were looking for, to help one another and our paths intersected. And that formed a team to do this. And we both brought like several, like really high level, like special operators that have experience doing clandestine operations. And, uh, and half of them in pers uh, precision personnel recovery. And uh, so we started coming up with a plan. And uh, I, I uh, had already talked to Tim Kennedy about joining, joining on the team. Cause what a lot of people don't know about Tim Kennedy, uh, is that he's he's an AFO, which is he has a tremendous amount of advanced uh, advanced force operator experience, ASO experience. He's highly trained in what he does. Uh, he's not just a, a military guy on social media; like he's very very skilled. And uh, so that's why I asked him. There's not a lot of guys that are trained ASO AFOs, and that's why I asked him, "Hey, would you want to be part of this?" And he said yes. And he talked to Nick. Nick talked to Sarah. Uh, we knew there's a huge administrative component to this. Because when we knew we were going to get more than just Aziz and his family, we knew we were going to go there. We had said, we're going to go there and we'll get as many people as we can. If we're going to do it, let's do it. And, uh, and that's what we decided to do. And we needed that administrative support because uh, as soon as we announced we were doing this, we knew it was going to happen. Thousands of emails came in. And, uh, and Sarah, personally, not just, your, not just Independence Fund, Sarah personally took the responsibility of building these lists that we operated here in the Middle East off of, uh, to give you I didn't kind of dare a tell my team at first, Chad. I did not <laughs> dare tell my team because they were going to be like, "We're doing what?" And so I did. I was I had gone to the beach with my girls and my my poor girls. Like they're so resilient. They're so blessed to live in the United States of America. And I said, "I will make it up for you at a different time." But I did. I mean, we went through more than fifteen thousand emails. I mean, it was just all hands, all the time, building the list, putting together their documents so that we could make sure we were doing like our own vetting before passing them forward. Um, but it was, if this is probably gonna like maybe rub some people the wrong way, but if you're in the military community, I'm, I'm like the leg of the operation, right? Like I'm I'm like at the desk, like I'm definitely not, I, maybe that's a paratrooper reference, but like not leaving the desk, not getting to jump, like truly just like doing the the office work, um, but so blessed to be able to do it. Is, there a lot of, is, your, is your husband an officer? No, uh-uh. No? Okay, I have to ask. Hey, Sarah, so, what, what, for people that aren't familiar with the Independence Fund, what do you, what's your day job? What do you normally sure. do when you're not doing, you know, rescue operations in <laughs> Afghanistan? Right. Um, so I, I'm the CEO of the Independence Fund, and we're a national nonprofit that assists mostly catastrophically wounded vets and their families. And we've also expanded our program to include all areas of wounded, ill, and injured. And of course, through suicide prevention, the guys that are from tactical hard hit units. Um, my husband was not an officer. He mm. was um, he was an E4. Not that there's anything wrong with being an officer, clearly. It, but everybody, it always cracks me up because I'm like, no, he was an E4. He was E4, he was an 82nd. Um, and he was, uh, unfortunately, he suffered two IED attacks and um, the second one was game over. So he's he is alive, but he requires um, very full-time care at home. Wow. When you all uh, started talking about this, and we've been on some, you know, team calls, and again, a lot of people are involved in this. Um, what was the expectation initially? It was Aziz and his family, maybe these three thousand orphans, uh, maybe there's others. What was the hope that we we'd walk away from this with with what? What's the answer to that question? 
I mean, for me, like, I think, a re- like, immediately when I realized there was capacity to get more than just disease in his family, that we'd get these 3,000 orphans, then, I, and, and as we started putting a team together and realized how many other SIVs were there, how many Americans would get, were there, uh, and I started, like, really understanding the, the kind of the landscape of what we're getting into, it just really kept, like, it just burdened my heart, like, Man, we have, I started realizing like we had the capacity to actually do this. We had the team, we started being able to get the money, the financial resources, which is the fuel and engine to make it happen. And, uh, and then, you know, I'll talk about another piece we got in here in a second, but we had a, you know, foreign government that was willing to support us. So we had all these pieces. So let's get as many as we can. And so what we actually did was one of the first things we did was, okay, let's form, because, you know, things get out of control if you don't have anything. I'm not into big formalities, but things do get out of control. So we let's form an official coalition of our organization. Uh, so Independence Fund and uh, Mighty Oaks Foundation. And in one other, we started with one other. Now it's just the two of us. We started at this officially coalition and we have a, several partners that we've been working with. Um, and uh, I have them up right here. I don't want to miss any of them. Just the ones that we have so far. Or uh, All Things Possible with Victor Marks. Miami International uh, Arbitration Society, The Warrior's Journey, Tim Kennedy's organization, Sheepdog Response, and Raven Group International, which is one of our uh, goddess run, running hit uh, shop here, Dan Stenson, a good friend of mine. He's he's kind of leading the, uh, like, kind of running administrative operation here in the Middle East. And so we set up this coalition, and then we really uh, established kind of a military operational uh kind of scope of work. So we, we set up a jock, a joint operations command center in Washington, DC and Sarah and her team, essentially what we did there was we we're funding the funnel, these emails to them. Uh, and, and I, I'm not there. I hadn't been there, but the way I understand it is, and the way I've seen what Sarah did is they're categorizing these people. So starting the first step of like a vetting and triage. So you have like American citizens, SIV applicants, which are interpreters, P1 visas, P2 visas, orphans, widows, Christians. Why Christians? Because they're going to be persecuted there uh, under Taliban rule. So we built this list and that that list ended up with, I think you said, I know we had 15,000 emails. I, we, me and Tim were talking. We, we said we were oh, able oh. to put about 8,000 through an actual list. We had enough documents to add them to a list. Um, okay. And and we, we also have a list and it's, it's pretty sad and hard to say. Like we also have a list of those that we weren't able to get to because unfortunately- Right, that, that were left behind. So we did incredible work, but we, we also left a lot of good people behind. That's so the job, yeah, the jock in DC, what they would do is the list that I was getting and kind of the data entry I was doing, they would then take those um, and they would package them, so to speak. And so Chad's team on the ground that had gone down range, they were able to actually facilitate getting these SIVs, these vulnerable people out of Afghanistan. And that was our, our other friend, JD, he's had a huge, as a volunteer, had a huge part yeah. in this as well. I mean, he's done great stuff, but their team- Thanks, in thanks, the, for, thanks for recognizing that. Yeah, well, yeah, but like in the Willard, I mean, they're, they're running this like a military app, like they're looking at it and they're getting kind of information from Chad and the guys in the Middle East. And then um, I'm making sure it looks the right way on a spreadsheet because Anytime, and I and that now my team is super engaged. But you know, anytime I was getting an email, I just thought I can't mess this up because we are the last hope that these people have, and um, that's a heavy burden. But also, just like an incredible privilege to be able to play a part in that. Every one of those emails have like such a heartbreaking story. I wanted to take a minute to let our audience know about the work that we do through an incredible veterans nonprofit called the Mighty Oaks Foundation. 
Many of our nation's warriors struggle with the hardships of military service and reintegration back into civilian life. Often they leave broken homes in their aftermath and comprise one of the most at-risk groups for suicide, with over 20 veterans who take their lives every single day. Mighty Oaks tackles this critical issue with our faith-based peer-to-peer resiliency and recovery programs offered at no cost to our honored servicemen and women at beautiful ranches across the United States. Mighty Oaks has one of the highest success rates of any program available anywhere. Visit MightyOaksPrograms.org to learn more about how you can make a direct impact in the lives of our servicemen and women to help them find a new life purpose through hope in Christ. Again, that's MightyOaksPrograms.org. Witnessing the transformation that these men and women go through is absolutely incredible. There are no words to describe seeing warriors restored to the lives they were created to live, changing their legacies for eternity. Your support is needed now more than ever and will ensure that our programs are here for our warriors who are in desperate need. Again, the website is MightyOaksPrograms.org. And then, you know, what we did from there, so we have a jock in D.C. called the Willard, and then we have the jock here in uh, the Middle East, the country we're in. And so the country we're in right now doesn't want to be named, but when we presented this to them, they said they were on board, not only uh, on board to support us, but they gave us access to a military base. So we had their runway to use for charter planes. Mm-hmm. We got some of their flights were military air from their, their military. And uh, I think we had like five generals working with us, uh, briefing like Minister of Interior. Like, I mean, we had a very high level support from this country. Uh, it'd be like working in the White House, like of another uh, in, in our state. So that's, that's where we've been working with. It might be more productive than working in our White House. I'm just saying. I think, I think so. Yeah, uh, very efficient this week. These people are incredible. And and so what we did here, here in our jock is we took that list, we built target list, uh, and meaning like this is who we're going for: 300 orphans, 20 Americans. Like build these target lists. Uh, we're going to round up, you know, 15 SIV guys. And then we have our guys on the ground at, at the Kabul airport and, uh, and outside the wire. So one guy inside coordinate with the military. We want to make sure that we recognize that the DOD did coordinate with us. We weren't just a bunch of Rambos out like, uh, you know, sneaking around, like we let the military know we were doing this. We worked in their tactical operations center. They knew where we were, what we were doing. We, uh, they, at first when we got there, they were not letting commercial aircraft, charter aircraft land because everyone was trying to land. So they just waved everyone off. And we said, hey, we'll take control of it and let's be a, we'll be a central point of communication for all commercial aircraft. And they were like, thank you, yes. And uh, so we, that's uh, what's called uh, COMTF, Commercial TF Task Force. And uh, so we managed commercial task force for the military and they were thankful for it. Hmm. And it allowed us to be able to land our planes. Um, and then so we work in, the, in uh, the Middle East at our jock with the teams on the ground. We coordinate with the Afghans or Americans that we're trying to pick up and our team and have them link up. And so one of the things that I think is super important because there's a little bit of criticism that, that everybody's throwing at this, at our operation and at the whole thing in general is who are we getting? Like, you know, is this a, like a Trojan horse yeah, from right, Taliban right. at in Virginia? Like who, who are these people? And uh, I can't speak for the military because you know, I don't know how they did it. I can't speak for any other organization, but what I'm super proud of our team for is uh, the level of like due diligence and, de- and deliberateness that we've had in the process from what Sarah's doing at categorizing this list has really helped speed our process up on the end. So that she's verifying documents. So we already know like 
they presented us documents. They presented us who they are. Now we have to figure that out. So we don't just go, Hey, just cause you got this document, maybe I meet you here. We want to know, like we want, we want like a bona fide. So we want like a, you know, we, we would say a seven point authentication. So if you give us a document and then we contact you by that number and then you meet at a certain time, you meet at a certain location, uh, that the way we're communicating with you, you have that document, you have that documentation, all these things like match up in a way that's communicated that wouldn't be able to, uh, no one else would be able to communicate with them that way. And then we have like near and four recognition symbols that I won't say how we do it. Uh, cause I don't want to give those, uh, you know, TTPs away, but we were able to do like a seven point authentication system. So we have a high level of confidence that this is who they say they are. So we have, a, we have my point is we just have a high level. That's one of the criticisms that people have. We had a high level of uh, being del very deliberate and intentional about making sure we're getting who we thought we were getting. Then they removed them onto the base. And then once they're on the, the, the base, the airport, there's like, you know, pat downs. And then the, then the military has their own process to bet, to bet them and pat them down and verify them. And then you know, we get them on the aircraft and move them back to here in the Middle East where I'm at right now. And we had a, a humanitarian center that was, we were told when we first came in this arrangement with the, this host nation that we could have 4,100 people here. And uh, we have a saying like this, a saying in business too. You can be, uh, you can be fast, you can be, uh, <laughs> you can be quality, or you can be accurate, right? And, uh, but you can't be all three. So we had, we had good quality, we were fast, but uh, we weren't very accurate. <laughs> so we overshot, we overshot the number pretty, we had 4,100, we ended up with uh, uh, 8,911. And, uh, and then we, on top of that, we coordinated another 3,000, um, which put us at about, you know, total about 12,000, but 8,911 is what we actually moved 12,000 total. Uh, and, you know, this is in an eight day period. And so yeah. I mean, our team, uh, you know, you work with me at Mighty Oaks, Jeremy, so I don't want to take away from anybody Mighty Oaks. Just, I love our team Mighty Oaks, what we do. But what was done this week is uh, it just something like super special. I mean, it was no one slept, but like everyone was like high functioning. I mean, people, some of the guys were like probably like 12 days straight with like two hours of sleep a day, tremendous amount of stress, moving at a thousand miles an hour, a million things going at the same time. And everybody was just like functioning at, at like the highest level. And uh, it was crazy walking out a little jo our little jock here and like whiteboards everywhere and stuff on the walls. And it's the level of organization, the level of uh, just skill. Um, yeah, it was just amazing. And, and, and for it to come together that fast, you know, I'm just so, I'm so proud of everyone here. It's yeah. incredible. And, and thank you, Sarah, for you and all you did and all your, your, guy, your people back there. You guys are doing the heavy lifting. I'll say that till the, forever. I mean, you are doing the heavy lifting. Sarah, can you talk about your processes there and maybe some of the volunteers and how, how you pull all that together? I mean, those numbers are, you know, hard for us to even, even get our minds around. How did you do that? Was it volunteers? Was it people that you paid? Was it a little bit of both? What was your process like? So I'd say the first probably like five days was me and a friend um, because I just... I, Afghanistan is really personal to all of us, right? I mean, it's just, it's deeply personal. And it was one of these things where healthy or not, um, all I could think was like, I'm working out every issue I have right now. I don't need therapy. I don't need anything. I'm, I am doing it this way by putting these people and getting them out of that country. Because, um, you know, whether this makes sense or not, for me, the losses in my house have been so significant and have um, really just worsened over time. 
my husband has now had 120 surgeries post Afghanistan. Wow. Um, he'll never be able to function as an independent adult. And I realize that I accept that. And I think that when I saw progress in Afghanistan, never mind, of course, keeping terrorism off of our shores, but I thought this is worth it. It's okay that he can't be the, a dad to my kid, our kids. Like it's okay that he doesn't know how old this one is, or doesn't know that it's this person's birthday because look at what the sacrifice was worth. So to see it all genuinely burning to the ground was like more than I could take. Yeah. So at first it was just really me and, and one other person, um, Sean Lee and um, just, doing it. It was so personal to both of us. Sean is a former employee of mine, great friend. His brother served with my husband for their Argandab River Valley deployment. And we just rolled our sleeves up. After kind of transitioning some of this and bringing in the Independence Fund formally, I have a fabulous casework team. Um, they are able to slay red tape like no other. <laughs> and they, you know, they did, they deal with the VA all the time. So this was, I was like, just think of the VA. Think of how clunky it is with the VA. This is sort of like dealing with the VA. Yeah. So they really have helped um, probably for the last however many days. The days are running together, I agree, with building additional manifests and helping me get those ready because we were very blessed. Like the support from DOD and Department of State, of course we all thought the reason we got into this is because we were unhappy with what was not happening, especially for the SIVs and these very vulnerable populations. But ultimately, once we were able to say, like, we have the infrastructure, we have the planes, we have a plan, DOD blessed off on it, and they were very helpful. I was able to submit the manifest to them every day and make sure that was turned around. So this was a coordinated effort, granted, uh, one that we probably never should have had to do, right. but it was just all hands. Like, there's no time for blame, it's just all hands. Yeah. Um, you guys have been working through those systems, and obviously the administration has a lot of, um, we'll say, responsibility to bear in what's happening there. Uh, but there are a lot of good people inside of the Department of Defense, inside of the military. Um, I know there have been frustrations, but can you can you kind of sketch that out a little bit? Who, who has been helping? <laughs> who hasn't been helping? Because most of the folks that I talk to, they just don't like anyone right now in uniform or in um, positions of political power or authority. And I'm not talking about, you know, the military guys on the ground. I'm just talking about the decision makers. Um, can you sketch that out a little bit? Who was helping you? Who wasn't helping you? And, and how did all of that practically work? Well, well um, I think I can't do that without telling you what the White House did. First of all, they, what they did was they not only pulled out of Afghanistan in a very reckless way without without a you know, a plan or and, and took Bagram Air Force Base away from the entire global uh, international community that was using the Bagram Air Force Base to support uh, and advise that ANA Army to fight the Taliban, which was working. Um, I've said this a lot on media um, uh, in the last few weeks. You know, since World War II, we have eighty thousand troops in Japan, forty thousand in Germany. It was 30,000 in South Korea since those wars a long time ago. Why was 4,000 made it? Why were we told like this is the endless war? We've been there too long. Why were, why were we told that and had to pull 4,000 troops out? At one time, we had 2,500 troops. This was working. But nonetheless, the White House chose to do that anyway. And, uh, and when they did, they removed uh, the military, including the military base, uh, Bagram Air Force Base, before the civilians created a tremendous uh, uh, problem, obviously. And, uh, and, then, and so now what you have, because the Taliban floods in, they, don't, they see the Taliban coming. Clearly, I know they see the Taliban coming because I've been in the room with the satellite that watches the Tarkum border of Pakistan. They watched 75,000 Taliban surge across Afghanistan and still they removed our citizens. 10,000 American citizens, maybe 30, up to 30,000 
we don't even know the number. They don't, the White House doesn't know the number, the State Department doesn't know the number, but at least 10,000, 80,000 allies. They never moved them. They let them surge around uh, the last stronghold, which is the Kabul airport, port, uh, HKIA uh, airport. And then, so now we have essentially a uh, holding one piece of ground, which is the landing, the landing airport for evacuations. And the Taliban surrounds the airport and makes a outer perimeter. Now, anybody knows anything about military strategy, if you control an airport and that somebody has the outer perimeter, you're not controlling the airport. Whoever controls the outer perimeter controls everything. Taliban controlled access to the airport. And the DOD had control of that airport. And a DOD normally would, in that scenario, with American citizens out there, would do a NEO operations, which is a non-combatant evacuation operation. Uh, that's the DOD's job. That's his function. Usually a JSOC or SOCOM task force manages it. The White House intervened took the NEO operation away from the DOD and gave it to the State Department, who had no experience doing this. They're not equipped to do it. They don't know how to do it. They're a, a diplomacy organization uh, for diplomatic solutions. So now the U.S. military has become a tool of the State Department, uh, and they're essentially have been turned into security guards, just like an embassy base. They can't, they're not allowed to do uh, rescue operations. They're not allowed to uh, inter intervene with the Taliban, even if they could witness an American citizen being wounded, wounded or beat up or have this passport taken from them, they can't intervene. In fact, that did that did in fact happen numerous occasions. And uh, to, I mean, this is if to describe like what's going on there, like sheer chaos. Forty thousand people at the gates, pushing, trying to push the gates down. People lifting their children up and and, and floating their babies across the crowd. They're you seen that one video of them like handing the baby over and the, the Marines took it. But there was another part of the gate when you know, one of my buddies Joe uh, and Joe and Dave that are here. They they went over to see us one part and they said they were floating the babies and people were tossing the babies over the fence because they thought when they got over the fence the Americans would pick it up. What they didn't realize was on the other side of that fence was about five feet high and about 20 feet deep of Constantino wire. And these babies were falling as Constantino wire, tangled up, bleeding out in the 100 degree sun. Terrible situation. And the military was not allowed to do anything to solve that problem. Uh, and the State Department, meanwhile, is negotiating with the Taliban, giving the Taliban deadlines and, uh, and, and, and allowing the Taliban and, and ordering the military. By, by the way, everything that I'm saying the State Department's doing, they're ordering the military to do it. Uh, uh, ordering the military to work with the Taliban for the Taliban to be the checkpoint. So now American citizens have to not just get past the Taliban, they have to get permission from the Taliban. They gotta show, you know, my blue passport. I gotta show this to the Taliban to get through. And they're taking them from Americans and telling you to tell them to go away. And so essentially now we have the greatest hostage situation in American history with thousands, hopefully not tens of thousands of Americans uh, out there right now with one day left for the White House's deadline. And uh, and, uh, and like I said, I've said this also a lot this week, my experience in being special operations, if you have one American, just one American, like in harm's way in another country in a dangerous place, and that special operations team that's, that's going to get them will freaking scorch the earth to get them. Like, even if we like, hey, we're gonna go get this person, we're probably gonna lose 10 guys. Good to go, like, they're American, we're gonna get them. And that's like the mentality in the military, but now they're being told, you can't go get 10,000 like of our American citizens. We're going to give them a deadline. Like the deadline, I mean, I'm not the president, but man, the, the message should be that the deadline, yeah, the deadline is when we get our people out. That's the deadline. You want a deadline? Yeah. Get out of the way. 
and let us get our get our people. And if you right. get in the way, we're gonna freaking crush you. Like that's the deadline. No, I agree with you. And Chad, I mean, you saw this like overnight, just this past night, and today we're at August 30th. Um, I have four Americans that are trying to get into the airport. And I'm getting calls that from congressional offices that are saying like, hey, no one's answering. We're being told they can't get through the airport. So then when we see DOD having a news conference saying, don't worry, the Americans, people who want to get out can get out, simply not true. I mean, I, I dealt with it the entire evening. Um, they're saying they, and they got they got slashed. I mean, it's it is simply not true. Um, and I'm and I'm not somebody who is ever going to speak. Just, I've never been in a military operation. I've never been on the ground in a country like that. I am getting direct reports from these people who are trying to pass through a gate that is either welded shut or just simply saying like we're we're asking the Taliban nicely. How horrifying is that statement and what it's going to do on the morale of our current armed services and armed forces. And then of course our veterans who have spent 20 years fighting the Taliban. And now we're like, well, we told the Taliban, please. I mean, it's horrific. The veterans suicide and mental health crisis from all of this is also something I'm seeing and dealing with daily right now because of how this was all handled so poorly and it is completely preventable. How many veterans do we have to tell that we can't help the interpreters this, this oh. week? And we, we've had we've had three who have said like we've had to call like an emergency line because they're like, I feel I can't go on because like I didn't get my guy out and like I'm going to kill myself. It is sickening. Now, on the flip side of that, so many veterans have been inspired by Chad and Nick and Tim being there and, and doing what they wish they could, but maybe they can't physically, emotionally, or they don't have the way to get there. Um, but that has been such a bright spot for a lot of veterans right now, too. But so many feel distraught about their allies, their brothers right. left behind. Everybody wants to, I love that all the, that's one of my favorite parts about this. All these veterans are like, I want to go, like sign me up. Like, so, so what, I have I'm a trying list. To, you're trying to squeeze in a uniform. And uh, I mean, I just got a call from Dakota Myers, like Medal of Honor recipient, like, hey, Chad, put me in. I'm like, yeah. I mean, that's awesome. Like, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, that's everybody wants to start a major, start a major candy, 16th started major in the Marine Corps. He's like, He's like, oh, can I get out there with you guys? Like, everybody wants to come out. And, you know, uh, I have a spreadsheet for everything. I'm like the spreadsheet queen. I have an actual spreadsheet of veterans who have written to me and said, like, hey, can I join Nick and Tim and Chad's army or their their op? Or, and I'm like, I'll put you on a spreadsheet. Don't don't think so, but I'll put you on the spreadsheet. So, I just want to say, you know, while we're saying that, like, you know, Nick, you know, Tim, myself, we kind of people kind of know who we are, but like the like the true like professionals that we are like following here is, uh, I mean, I'm just saying their first names. We got like Dan, uh, Kevin, Sean, uh, David, like we can't say who those guys are, but those guys are like, I'm like, you know, I, I have a lot of like high level special operations experience from the past. These guys are like higher level than me now. Like these guys are like, you know, probably some of the best guys in the world that what they do. And so we're working with really, really top level. I mean, all of these, these guys, I'm like, it's amazing and you know you guys won't know who they are but they're uh they're amazing yeah uh, and then you know um right now like uh all like so many it's just like it feels like it's it's over like uh i mean right now they have and this is firsthand from troops on the ground there they have been told this they basically have, are not doing anything outside the base anymore they're cleaning they're having to clean the airport clean the the crappers that don't work uh that are full of urine and feces the marines and the soldiers are having to go in there and clean up 
to do a handover of that airport to the Taliban. I couldn't imagine having a clean. It's, it's disgraceful. I mean, it's truly disgraceful. Um, yeah. I had a conversation, you guys have these as well, this morning with someone who was asking what happens next. And, uh, you know, there has to be some hope in it. And I think some of the hope is people will continue to be evacuated. People will make it to borders and get out somehow and take care of themselves. A lot of that continues. Um, one of the things that's been confusing, I think, for people here is understanding that there's an organization like this, like this coalition, but there are a lot of organizations who have been working, you know, in the last couple of weeks in particular to get folks out. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, just some of the other organizations that maybe you've worked with or worked alongside or <laughs> passed in the hallway or whatever that looks like? Um, we, we talk about, you know, organizations like um, um, Mercury One or the Nazarene Fund, and, you know, there are other people who are trying. Can you talk about some of those? Those are two big ones. I mean, I, I, you know, I personally have talked to Glenn Beck, you know, three, three times while he came out, he came out to the Middle East. Um, you know, he was in the same area I was in. We spoke, uh, he's, you know, his Mercury One Foundation raised a tremendous amount of money to do this uh, through the Nazarene Fund. Uh, they rescued uh, about, I want to say, 2,900 people. I could be wrong, but a lot of people. And uh, and so we were working there. There, uh, that ComTF uh, commercial uh, commercial task force. We were managing uh, their flights uh, for them and working directly with them. Rudy there is just an amazing guy, huge heart. Uh, in addition, they financially uh, su supported us. Um, Sarah, I don't even know if I told, know, told, if I told you yet, um, but they just donated uh, two hundred two hundred seventy five thousand to the coalition for our efforts. So they partnered with us that way. That just happened. Um, so uh, they're, they're incredible. Glenn's incredible. He has a huge heart for this. Rudy, the people there, and everybody at Nazarene Fund was great. I, mean, I was worked with, we worked in our, we shared our jock with a, a British, British SAS guy, uh, Kiwi, uh, uh, New Zealand special operations guy. They look pretty tough too. Yeah. Great, great guy. I, didn't know, I didn't know New Zealand had special operations guy. Then a, then a, a guy from, Scot from Scotland who's a Scotland military guy. I can't understand him talking, but uh, he's a really cool guy. And does all these a, guys does are, he wear a skirt all the time, or is that is that just in the movies? Nobody show me a picture of him in a skirt and all his medals on him. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but yeah, some really, really great guys, and they, they're, uh, you know, kind of the military, like hostage rescue team for Nazarene Fund, and uh, yeah, great guys, and it's, we shared our jock with them this week, and uh, they, and yeah, uh, so the, them, all, uh, Victor Marks, All Things Possible, uh, we work directly with them to rescue a family, uh, a family that, that kind of all things possible kind of said, Hey, we, you know, instead of going like on a broad effort, they said, we're going to rescue this family. And, uh, and, you know, we worked directly with them, coordinated the coordinated the link up for that family. And, uh, we were able to get our guys were able on the ground. We were able to get that family, get them inside, vet them, uh, do all the bona fides for them and get them on a plane and get them out. So yeah. we, we actually worked directly with, uh, all things possible to get that family out. What is the, uh, Two questions. One is, where are we now? So I got I to mention one more. Yeah, and please. I can't remember the name. Sarah, do you, I should know the name. Uh, Leon and Kevin. They're, yeah, they're the Child Protection Task Force. I mean, they're doing great stuff. We had a call with them today, um, and they're one of them is right with Chad in the Middle East right now, figuring out next steps. So yeah, what? The Child Protection Task Force, and they're, they're here because we have so many kids. We have orphans and, yeah. and kids and. And the Afghan culture, we say the word orphan a lot, like we've been saying that word all week, but Afghan culture really doesn't have orphans. They don't consider 
to have orphans in their culture because they're culturally they're going to bring someone in. Uh, but sometimes that's not good, uh, you know, if you get to make sure them vulnerable. And so right. uh, they came in, they're experts at uh, this, that's what their organization does. And so we, we partnered with them for that specific reason to protect the children that we, that we have here. So what, what is happening now? What are the next steps? Uh, we, you know, we're using language like the mission is over and things like that. And I think people can misunderstand that because it's really not. There's a second phase that we're moving into. So what are we doing now? How does this continue? And why should people continue to care and support? Yeah, well, let me go, I'll go again on this, Sarah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not over. This is, the, this is now we're in a heavy lift. Like to us, that, that part was fast. Uh, deliberate is what we're good at. The next part, <laughs> we don't know anything about. I mean, I mean, moving people, when you're moving, like these aren't refugees, these are evacuees, right? Uh, so these, these people had to be moved. Or, uh, but, so they've been evacuated. All these countries, like the one we brought them to, we had supposed to bring 4,100, we got 12,000. All these countries filled up. And on uh, the back end, that backflow to get them out and move them along to immigration process, the U.S. State Department, uh, for some reason, has been either paralyzed or frozen or just not participating. Uh, and I've no, no shot to the people in the U.S. State Department because I've met several this week that are really good people. But as an organization, as an institution, the U.S. State Department was not prepared for this. They weren't prepared for people like us to do what we did and clock their system. Uh, personally, it, it appears to me right now that they never intended to get these people out or else they would have a system in place. Uh, I mean, if they intended to get out 8,000 Afghans, then it would be a system in place. But they're, they're reacting to us actually getting these people out and trying to figure out what to do. Um, there's all these countries are participating and helping. I can tell you that the humanitarian center here where we are is phenomenal. These people like are so amazing. They have toys for the kids and, and, uh, and doctors and uh, x-rays and, you know, people were, people were injured because of the crowds and all the stuff and the Taliban hurt people. And so met the medical attention and they have social workers and everything that take care of these people. And they're in nice apartment buildings and, and, uh, really clean. It's, it's not like a tent city. It's a really nice scenario. And then, uh, I just escorted a plane full of, uh, uh, we, we've done three planes now to another country. And the only reason I'm going to say, if I'm not saying the names of these countries is because the state department, for some reason, every time an NGO or humanitarian effort says the name of a country that we're moving people to, they call that country and say, don't take people. I can't say why they're doing it. I'm not making any accusations. It's just what's happening. And uh, so I'm not saying the name of the country we're bringing them to, but we shuttled them to, to this country. They had amazing facilities. We brought them to like a, almost like a, like camp. Uh, like a, a resort and they're in the woods and kids are playing in the woods. It's, it's really nice. Now it, it's, these kids are excited. The families are excited. They're there, but then you see every now and then you'll see someone by themselves just staring off. And uh, I've been, I went and talked to a couple of them and, and you know, those are the people that got separated from their families. Like yeah. Two 13 year old boys, uh, both not, not related, separated from their families. Uh, one, uh, I you know, asked them how it happened and he was a, uh, him and his family are trying to get through. They got separated in the crowd when the Taliban started shooting. And that during that separation, his father got scared, pulled the other kids back, told him to keep going and to meet him inside. He made it inside. The family never did. And uh, I pick, I used my phone to call and leave a message for his mom and dad. They didn't answer, but we let them know he was okay. Yeah. Um, and he'll probably, you'll probably never see them again. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of those stories. So there's joy, there's sorrow, like in those stories. Um, and then there's like, 
I've been torn all week. Like Sarah said earlier, there's the list of people that we didn't get. I mean, there was like two times I was on a tarmac getting to go out, uh, going out because we were going to get a group of like 300 orphans both times. And we were about to fly out and our flight got canceled or the air went cleared or, and then, and then we missed a window and then I don't know where they are. Yeah. Yeah. I think also it's important like with, with what Chad is saying, which he really has been the the operations behind, like get, and I, and I love his heart on this because it was like, get them out, like period, just get them out, get who we can, help where we can um, get them out. And then there is this entire, like, it, we're not mission complete. It's, we're on to the next phase of the mission. Right. Um, very sadly, of course, it seems like the evacuation efforts are over. And I've had to just say that now to the veterans and families that are writing to us, because I think giving them false hope would really just be cruel. So like I said, if, if we hear otherwise, we have, we're keeping a list, every name and every life is precious to us. And we're putting that on our list. Um, but it's sort of like what comes next. And, and I know that, you know, we're Christians and, I said this to Chad the other night or other morning or whatever time zone it was, but I said it, it would sort of be like just getting them out and then not figuring out what happens next right. would be like being like pro-birth, right? Like you're not like, are you pro-life? Like, do you really care sure. about life or are you just like want somebody to, you know, have a baby and and then say like, well, that, that's not our problem and we won't do that because I think that's that good. like really being and doing God's work, at least striving to, means like really helping these people with every resource and ability that we have for as long as we can. Yeah, excellent. Great way yeah. of putting it. Um, unless you have That's something to add, I think it's a good place to end. Yeah, I just want to say that, you know, I just want to kind of double down on that. We we talked as a staff and, and you know this, Jeremy, for our position at Mighty Oaks, like just going to give them is, is, is not enough. We've got to see it through uh, to each and every one of them. We, we really, I feel like we took responsibility of 8,911 lives and we need to see that through as best as we can. And uh, we're gonna do that. And people have been providing the great resources at saveourwarriors.org. If you're listening and wanna support financially to that and be part of it, uh, save our, saveourallies.org is a website. Additionally, if you wanna write your Congressman or Senator, the instructions on how to do that is on that website. Uh, Cause they need, we need to be pushing people in Washington DC to do the right thing to get these people uh, into the process. I mean and get vetted and processed to come into in our system and, 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 and immigrate to America. We're talking, you know, we're not talking about big numbers. We're talking about, about, about two weeks of the Southern border, mm. not yeah. to get political. Yeah, <laughs> and, I th- and I think too, like let's share the veterans crisis line because we know <laughs> veterans are struggling. Um, there's casualties on both sides of it and the ones that we can prevent. I mean, that's what we want to do. So I would urge veterans watching this, or if you have a family member who's struggling to call that crisis line at 800, 800- Two seven three eight two five five, and I'm sure we can get that number up. But um, help is available. That we never ever want someone to be without hope. Yeah, that's great. Chad and Sarah, thank you very much. Right. Yeah. Mighty Oaks as well. All right. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you. A great conversation and so much great information. I'm thankful as an American to know that even though the government, our politicians, and the current administration uh, may be making decisions that are harmful to so many. There are still many, many Americans uh, across the country, folks around the world who are stepping up and making things happen. Great conversation today, and I hope that you will take some time to go to saveourallies.org, saveourallies.org to learn more. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next time.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.